what I want to talk about today is what happened in the Americas when the old world diseases hot, hit the Americas. So when we left off in the film clip, we saw the swine. And what actually happened in, um, let me start here. Um, a virgin soil epidemic is an initial outbreak of a disease previously unknown or absent from a particular area for many generations. In some senses, that's what we learned about in the plague in the Middle East. Um, and then I also want to clear any preconceptions that we may have, and we all have, that the Americas were virgin territory and there was no disease. Um, there were diseases in the Americas, and particularly Latin America. As a matter of fact, tuberculosis was endemic, and archaeologists have found tuberculosis in archaeological reigns, um, remains in North America and South America. They also find evidence, skeletal evidence, of arthritis. There is also an American strain of typhus. Nobody is sure at this point how far back it probably predates the Columbian encounter, and I know all of you have been through the um, 1992 Columbian encounter. You know about that idea of the meeting of the old world and the new world. Um, and it's probable that there were other enteric diseases. Um, one disease that went back the other way was syphilis. Syphilis was a new world disease, and um, it was when the Spaniards went back, and actually with Christopher Columbus, the second voyage, they are the ones who introduced it into Spain, and there was an outbreak of syphilis. I just want to talk about two ways of looking at epidemics. First, there's biology, and there's the etiology of the disease, and we've learned a little bit about that so far. There are morbidity rates, and that is how many of a population fall sick. There are case mortality rates of those of the population who become sick. A certain percentage may die from it. There are other environmental factors, um, such as whether you have a temperate zone. Typhus is a more common disease of temperate zones because it is carried by the lice on rats. There are tropical diseases, and actually tropical diseases are what came, uh, were the first uh, sort of problem in the colonialism of the British and the Europeans and the North American in addressing those problems. So that's where contemporary and current public health um, got its first, um, began the preventive efforts. There are ecological systems. And all ecological systems include human populations. And um, when those ecological systems are disturbed, you often see the emergence of a new disease, such as Ebola. And some postulate that HIV-AIDS is also a result of a deserved environmental zone. Okay, but along with epidemics, we need to think about epistemology in epidemics. Epistemology is a fancy word for worldview. How we think about life, death, dying, the hereafter, 
and in many cultures, the here before. And that our understandings, or epistemological understandings, whether you're Indian, whether you're African, whether you're um, Andean, these epistemological understandings inform human behavior or our actions. So there are things that we can look at historically and that we've seen already. Um, there are measures of prevention. Now, they may work, they may not work, uh, but preventive measures have been taken as early as we heard as the Sumerians. And one of those preventive measures is quarantine, and we learned about that with the Sumerians. Now, the reason for that quarantine is because that person was presumably possessed by a god, and that god had to be married. But the reality, the, the behavior was that person was to be quarantined. Today, quarantine, our understanding of it is that there's a virus shedding. But the behavior and the epistemological worldview impacts on the behavior. Other preventive measures are prayer and ceremonial um, responses to disease. We saw that with the smallpox goddess. And also, other responses are medicine. And herbs and other ingredients have been used for many, many years, millennium, to um, cure and prevent disease. Then we have the larger social structure and political structure whether we have a hierarchical society or a smaller tribal society, which may be more egalitarian, whether we have an urban society or a more rural society, and then how is social welfare understood? How is it distributed? And what about healthcare delivery? These are all issues that public um, health professionals need to take into consideration today in planning prevention against epidemics and in dealing with epidemics. So the first voyages from Spain into the New World, of course, was Christopher Columbus, 1492, sailed the ocean blue, and he arrived first in the Caribbean, and this is the Dominican Republic in Haiti, just for those of you this is Cuba, 90 miles from Florida. This is Puerto Rico. He arrives on Hispaniola, which is Dominican Republic and Haiti, with a few men. When he goes on to explore in these other areas in Cuba, he leaves a few soldiers in the settlement of Isabella. And he takes with him six native Taino Indians. And he returns to Spain with those Indians. It appears that syphilis was introduced probably on that first or second voyage. There was another voyage in 1494 where a thousand Spanish colonists came and they brought with them, uh, there were several ships, several dozen ships, they brought with them cattle, swine, horses, chickens, so not only do we have the introduction of uh, old world diseases, and they were involved in this, but we also have introduction of animals and even some plants that 
then were the sources of zoonotic diseases. And they passed from the animals to the populations there. Oh, wait, wrong thing. There's a worldview. This is um, among the Hispaniola. I just want you to look at this. This is, a, this is a combination of male and female. I think you can figure it out. Um, and there is a central or a fifth dimension. And so the population of Hispaniola at the time of contact, there are some estimates. I'm not even going to go with the high estimate. The Cook and Bohr estimated that there were 10 million people on that island. And that estimate was a retrospective study epidemiologically. It works mathematically. It was completely rejected. The low estimate is that there were 230,000 people on the island. By 1650, there were only 2,000 Taino Indians left on the island. And there were about 5,000 Spaniards. Um, so there were a lot of changes. The material world, um, at the point of contact, there was Canuco agriculture, which is a system in which there were large mounds about like the size of this room. And there was um, mixed agriculture. So there was yuca, cassava, fruits. It was good. That was a kind of ecological system. Um, oh, sweet potato. That's what batata is. By 1650, all of the activities had been shifted to gold mining in the central part of the island and sugar plantation farming. Gold mining took the Indians away from the farming, which meant the crops could not be tended, which meant that there was widespread fam famine. Introduction of sugar plantation disrupted the local economy. And somewhere along the way, it uh, provided a very good source and a place for mosquitoes, especially the Anopheles mosquito, to increase. And this is about the time that malaria appears in the New World. There's good evidence from recent, um, recent manuscript collections from the um, Columbus expedition that suggests that smallpox may have been introduced as early as 1494. Um, the social and political world changed. Uh, at the time of contact, there were large um, tribal units. There were five tribal units on the island with caciques. And they were called casigascos. By 1650, there had been huge migrations, forced migrations, to work in the mines. Indians were reduced. There was widespread famine, and there had been a lot of epidemics moving through the island, introduced on several voyages, and the colonists coming in. Historians, and I'm trying to save you from all of the detail because they fight over it, and they're looking over, well, this was probably typhus, and this was surely smallpox, and no, smallpox didn't appear until 1518. But no, look, we found something new, and it really looks like there was a case of smallpox on this ship that came in 1494. We do know that the population, we do know that in 1508 there was a census taken, and there were 60,000 Taino Indians. 1516, after the smallpox epidemic, there were 23,000 Taino Indians left. 
And by 1650, there were only 2,000 Taino left. And yet at the same time, the Spanish colonists are thriving. They too were affected by these diseases. And I'll explain how that worked later. So the epistemology of the worldview completely changed. Um, you had, the, in the, the Taino worldview, you had the four uh, cardinal points, and you had the sky, and you had, and which was the hereafter, and there was a fifth dimension that went down to the here before. And the um, healer, or excuse me, the principal um, spiritual um, leader would, uh, uh, the ceremonies would be around the semi, which is what I showed you, that image, and they would smoke um, a hallucinogenic substance and they intermediated between the here before and the hereafter. Um, by 1650, with that tremendous depopulation, there are accounts of widespread despair, lots of devastation. The spiritual, the worldview is really disrupted. How can you believe in a god that, how has that worked? While the Spanish gods seem to work for the Spaniards. Okay, we heard earlier about the fact that there's historians tend to discount what observers said about the ghost ships. Some of the early, all of, almost all of the early um, explorers commented on the fact that so many, maybe only a third of the population was left within 10 years. Um, and this is where I want to raise the theme of denial. When we, 40 years ago, there was a, an anthropologist who said, based on the evidence and looking what we see in the censuses from the 1600s to the 1700s, there was massive depopulation and that if we go backwards, we would calculate that there were probably 100 million people in North and South America. There has been a 40-year reaction against that. That's impossible. There weren't that many people. It's impossible. Um, what comes of that? If we deny the fact that there were that many people, it allows us to understand the fact that European colonists come in and settled a virgin territory. That there were not that many people on this con these two continents before that time. So, Denial, I think, has been very strong retrospectively, and I think we will also see that it's been very strong prospectively in dealing with the impending epidemics that we've been talking about today, not the least of which is HIV-AIDS. From Hispaniola, Cortez, as you all remember, traveled from Mexico into the Central Valley lands on the Yucatan, travels up to Tlaxcala, and takes his forces, about 600 Spanish soldiers and about 2,000 allied soldiers from the nation state of Tlaxcala into Tenochtitlan, which is Mexico City. Okay, he goes into Tenochtitlan in June of 1520. His soldiers are met by the soldiers and army of Montezuma. It's a, it's a different name, but we're going to use the name Montezuma. 
They were roundly defeated. They suffered great losses and casualties. And they retreated from the city with the Tlaxcalan soldiers. They went back to Tlaxcala in what is known in Mexican history as the Noche Triste, the sad night. And they retreated for 40 days. 40 days later, they went back. And we know on that trip, there's historical evidence that smallpox was introduced into the city of Tenochtitlan. I would like all of the area studies coordinators to come up here, and they're going to be the Spanish, Lorraine and Aaron and Irving and Cristal and Rashid. I need six people up here. The rest of you are going to be the city of Tenochtitlan, and I would like you to stand. And Kasha? Yes, I need six of you to stand together. Okay. Right, I know what it's like after lunch. You just want to sleep. So if you would stand, please. All of you who are standing, sit down. And all of you who are seated, stand up. That's how many people are left in the city when Cortez comes back six months later in January. So there may have been higher mortality among the soldiers because they lived closer together. There are uh, certainly your ceremonial people. You can sit down now. There's no care of the sick. 90% of the population is sick, and the majority of them are sick at the same time. OK, what happens with the Spaniards? They come in. They've been exposed to smallpox. So because smallpox by that time was primarily a childhood disease. Remember those spikes that we saw about measles? That's what smallpox was doing. But at that time, it only had, at the maximum, a 40% morbidity. So of this group, two of you are going to get sick. So Aaron and uh, Rashid, you're sick. The mortality, the case mortality is the same. So half of them are going to die, 50 to 60%. So Rashid, you're out. So what happens? More Spaniards relative to live relative to the virgin soil population. This is exactly what happened now. Smallpox is a particularly virulent disease. There's 50 to 60% case mortality. Measles came through. There's only 20% uh, case mortality in that. Influenza is introduced. Swine and fowl influenza, so similar sorts of strains are introduced. Typhus is introduced. Typhus was more important in the highland temperate regions. Malaria is introduced. So there's, by 1650, there's this dramatic, uh, oh, I went back to the ink. I didn't mean to do that. There's Mexico. So in 1491, Tenochtitlan had roughly 10 to 12 million, uh, supposed to be 1,000. And the, the entire uh, valley of Mexico, Central America, the population was estimated a low population of around 10 million to 12,000. By 1650, the entire population of Mexico and Central America is down to 1,300,000. Thank you. And before they sit down, 
I want to thank this group. I think they've done a fabulous job. They do not get enough uh, credit for what they do, particularly Lorraine, who has been very instrumental in organizing this. And I just want you to know, in the relative hierarchy of a university, they are staff. Uh, faculty get all of the credit, but I think you would like to help me congratulate them on this fabulous program. Now it is true that in the 1800s in North America, people knew enough to sell um, blankets that were infected with smallpox among the Indians. These things happened, but it was not intentional in the beginning. And these are isolated cases, so I would like to kind of get away from that uh, biological warfare, terrorism in the Americas. Um, so you can see some of the changes in the material world, in the social and political world, and in the epistemology. You can see that there is a spiritual, um, obviously there had to have been a, a, a real big spiritual conflict, and it would have looked that the Spanish gods might have been stronger. Plus, there was the whole practice of destroying the cathedrals, destroying the temples to the Aztec gods and creating the new cathedrals on top of it. So, um, but everything changed, has changed by 1650. And there's been a traumatic, dramatic demographic collapse. And all of these diseases, of course, leads to famine, uh, leads to reduced susceptibility. Now, the Spaniards were affected by all of the epidemics. They had a hard time. Let's give them a break. Uh, Here's a Nahuatl image of smallpox among the, uh, in Mexico, in Mesoamerica. What we saw an image of earlier was Pizarro's campaign into the Inca regions, or in South America. Dobbins, again, this per person who came up with the estimate of, 10, of 100 million people for North and South America, hypothesized that it was possible that smallpox spread into the region ahead of the first conquistadors, the ones who were writing history. That's hotly disputed. And the most recent, um, most recent research shows that maybe it wasn't smallpox. There aren't any mummies that show evidence of smallpox. It might have been typhus. But there is evidence that there had been a couple of epidemics that had moved through the empire before that time. Again, we have in the material world a shift from um, potato and quinoa and guinea pigs, some domesticated animals, and llamas. Um, so, and the world, I'll let you read that. You can see what was before and what it was like after. Uh, so forced migrations. Demographic collapse, um, imposed colonial systems, export economies. Does any of this sound familiar? Does it begin to sound like what's happening in the world today? These are the consequences of epidemic diseases. This is now we're beginning to see a relative prosperity where the colonial order is gaining dominance. When Atahualpa was who was killed in the conquest of uh, in Cajamarca. In an Inca um, 
text, a codex that was written about 100 years after the sim symbol of, him, of it was that the earth refused to devour the Inca's body because he represented God. The rocks trembled, tears made torrents, the sun, which was the sun god, was obscured, the moon fell ill. It was a very deeply traumatic spiritual conquest of the Andean region. In this illustration, um, in Aymara, it's either Aymara or Quechua, the translation is the Incas are saying to the Spaniard, do you eat this gold? Do you eat our God? Do you eat the sun? And the Spaniard says, yes, we eat this gold. We take this gold and we produce it. Okay, these are the numbers. This is Dobbins in 1966. Now, I've left out North America. That's why it's not 100 million. This is another low counter who says it couldn't have been that many. It was only 13,000, 400,000. 1650, the entire population of Latin America is 3 million. So the entire population, including the colonists, is down to 3 million. Here is all of New Spain, Mexico, Central America. When does the population begin to recover? 5,800,000 in 1800. It's not even recovered by 1700. When does it begin to happen in South America? 6,800,000. And we know those figures because by that time the Spanish colonial system was very good about counting and taking its tribute from the native people. Now we have 408 million people in South America. Uh, we have 98 million people in Mexico and Central America. So what can we learn from this historical epidemiology? All of you who were bored uh, and have a hard time paying attention to history, it really has some, and I didn't mean to say that, but I know. Uh, I know that sometimes the detail of history can be really difficult, just as the detail of biostatistics, believe me, cannot be, uh, can be a little difficult to understand as well. We can learn that ecological systems, can, when they're disrupted, human populations are integral to them, and when there are environmental transformations and ecological transformations, there is often the rise of epidemic disease. So, for instance, in Brazil, when rubber tapping was, sh when the production of rubber and tapping the rainforest shifted to cattle ranching and encroaching on the rainforest in southern Brazil, there's a rise of Chagas disease, which is a, uh, it's a trep, I think it's a trep treptosoma, and um, it's, it's pretty gross. It's like American sleeping sickness, that's right. Um, trade and trading networks and transportation, the ships and boats, the paths and roads, the, path, the Inca Trail, the ships from the old world to the new world, all of these paths spread the epidemic disease. We see that today in tracking HIV AIDS. Now, you're going to hear that there are exceptions to the rule. 
it has followed trade routes. It started first with the airplanes from um, a Canadian pilot or flight attendant travels to Haiti to a club med, introduces HIV AIDS in Haiti. Um, so this is happening throughout the world. We follow trucking routes, we follow HIV AIDS. Introduction of new plants and animals. It's happening much more quickly, but it's happening. But you can see it happened very quickly in the Americas. It took a few weeks for the ships to get there instead of 24 hours. Um, the markets, as we learned about Egypt, are completely disrupted. Circulation and flow of goods changes. Um, resources are divert diverted to exports. <coughs> we have um, export economies in Africa, but they're not preparing. Um, they're not producing enough to uh, to sustain themselves. Excuse, excuse me for my stuttering, but um, so the source of prosperity and livelihood is all disrupted. Social conditions change. Settlement patterns are shifted to migrations. We see that with the huge refugee camps, not just in Africa, but in Eastern Europe and other parts of the world. We see um, social standing and relative prosperity, and this is very, very important today, unequal distribution of health care, health care inequities. The Spaniards did a better job of surviving from the epidemic diseases, first because they were more exposed, and second because they had a history of nursing, which the native people did not yet have, and because ultimately they were richer. They got all the goodies. They had enough food. Um, and then we have differences between occupation and colonization. We have different systems and political systems. So I want to go back to this issue of denial. Historians have denied the fact that there, were, there could possibly have been that many people on the Americas in 1491. Oh, sorry. Um, but we're looking ahead, and we see the reemergence of infectious and tropical diseases. We're watching the spread of HIV-AIDS. We're seeing. Um, Diphtheria return. Malaria is one of the number one problems in the world. Um, there are a list of them. We're seeing most of these diseases, infectious and epidemic diseases, coming back. Um, but part of this is in due to weakened vaccination rates and, and health sector reforms. And now I'm talking about Latin America, which, if you're going to move to private health care, privatization, you're going to take resources away from vaccination. And so we're beginning to see certain diseases that most people, uh, that we've been able to protect for this century, reemerge. In the Dominican Republic, there was an outbreak of polio in 1999 because there was a lot of, of uh, lack of attention to vaccination. And um, one area of the country, the vaccine which is a live vaccine, reverted back to the virulent form, and there were some uh, polio cases. Uh, we see the emergence of this new strain of tuberculosis, multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. 
It's happened in many parts of the world. In the Dominican Republic, what happened is that Trujillo, during his administration or his dictatorship, said, we've conquered that problem. We no longer have tuberculosis. And the doctors and the nurses and the patients who, the doctors and nurses who encountered patients who actually had tuberculosis, A, did not have the medication to treat them, and B, were risking their life if they even acknowledged that it existed. So we had the emergence of multidrug resistant tuberculosis, which then in the 90s was introduced in New York with the um, immigration of Dominicans into the New York and Rhode Island area. We have the situation of HIV AIDS in Haiti. We have very high um, rates of infection in Haiti, and yet in the United States, a country of relative prosperity, we've done a much better job of keeping those rates down. And it has also happened on the same island in the Dominican Republic. Um, they've done a good job of controlling the spread of HIV AIDS. They've done a good job because they've had more resources. Haiti was a test case. Nobody knew what was causing it. They didn't know how to intervene. They've done a good job in the Dominican Republic. However, even in the Dominican Republic today, there is no treatment for those people who have HIV AIDS. So the course of it is one or two years before the patients die versus what it has become in the United States, a, a sort of chronic disease. Um, okay, so again, this denial, looking ahead, infectious disease and disease prevention. We want to look at this idea of high counters versus low counters in the past and looking ahead. We've seen the spread of HIV AIDS worldwide. There was a epidemic of cholera in Latin America in 1991. Now, this is modern scientific age. We should have been able to respond to it. Part of it was due to natural disasters and mudslides, but it was introduced in Peru uh, from a ship in the Bilgewater. It was first introduced into Peru, and the Peruvian government had a lack of political will in confronting the disease, and so they didn't move quickly enough to it. It spread um, to play. It spread to Colombia, and in Colombia, here we see the uneven distribution of health care. The mortality rates were through the roof among the indigenous people, but they did a good job of controlling it among the urban people. That was a conflict between epistemologies. Indian people were criticized because they didn't conform with the Western idea of health and medicine. They weren't medically compliant, even though it cost them a lot of money to travel into a clinic. Um, there, was, there was clearly a racist discrimination in how that epidemic affected that country. Um, so this is where issues of epistemology or worldview are very important. Let's see if I have that in there. In uh, just this is denial. This is watching HIV/AIDS in Latin America, and it is not considered a hot spot. There's still a chance to intervene in that continent. It is, you know, the focus right now is on Africa, China, Eastern Europe. It's rising in Latin America. This is a good point 
for prevention to begin. Um, so this is where area studies come in. <clears throat> for effective intervention or prevention or treatment, you have to have specific knowledge of local knowledge, attitudes, and practices. This is called KAP in public health. You have to understand core epistemological concepts about life, about death, about dying, about the hereafter and the here before. Death and dying funeral practices, the social life of the body. What are you going to do if people want to honor their father and mother and they have Ebola? How are you going to intervene there? How are you going to get into a worldview that's, that says something like this is a way of taking the God who um, possessed your grandfather and removing him and marrying him to the goddess that will take this away? This is how to do it. Um, so it requires expertise from area studies. It requires knowledge of language. We heard about philology. It requires knowledge of culture. We saw about the smallpox god in South Asia, even history, religion, politics, economics, disease prevention, and response to the coming epidemics is something that belongs to all of us, that we need to work together. And that is sort of the focus of this institute and this workshop. And I think that there is some interest of some of us of perhaps gathering these papers and, and making that argument. Um, so this is just a statement from uh, a recent publication of Epidemic and um, Infectious Disease. Um, medical practitioners are coming together with social science practitioners and even in the humanities. Are there any questions? Yes. I just wanted to um, hear your opinion concerning would there be any emergence of new diseases or, or old eradicated, eradicated diseases from like the emancipation of the Iraqi government now because the they are now quote unquote liberated? Do you feel like would there be any new or any old um, trends that that you said would probably uh, manifest itself now? Do you feel? Well, well, first of all, I'm a Latin Americanist, so I would have to take this to uh, uh, someone in the Middle East. Biologically, when you have disruptions, migrations, warfare, you have conditions that make the reemergence of epidemic diseases happen. You also have, if your water supplies are interrupted, you have conditions that mean that enteric diseases, uh, diarrhea, parasites, ANOVA, and bacteria can come back. That weakens the system, you know, can lead to malnutrition, that makes it worse. So these are the conditions that we're talking about that we saw in Latin America. Why, if there's no intervention for Latin America when it comes to HIV, why have they not started uh, no treatment for them? There has been um, an effort for HIV-AIDS intervention, and actually some of it started in Latin America, particularly in Brazil, where public health is considered, and health care is considered a public good, 
and the people in the areas where HIV-AIDS was beginning to spread demanded that the government intervene. In other parts of Latin America, the governments waited until the Pan-American Health Organization and international agencies stepped in to intervene. So a lot has to do with political will and, and relative prosperity. There are programs against it, but worldwide, the uh, public health practitioners tend to pick the most, the, the, the places where the disease is fasting, is um, spreading the fastest. So the focus is on Africa, China, parts of India. That's a sort of choice or a decision. I just wanted to um, quickly mention, you had a quote by Las Casas, and he was a tremendous advocate of um, giving rights or, or recognizing the natives as uh, in defense of the Indians. And I think that's a perfect example of political will at work in which he worked very hard to change that will towards the viewpoints that people had of the natives as being like a third of a person or like an animal. Um, and um, it's unfortunate that right now, I mean, e even that effect, as far as the viewpoint of the immigrants of the um, Africa continent, um, you know, they were even just pushed back. You know, he helped in a way, you know, to focus on the Indians and to give them rights, and that gave them an even extra, uh, you know, um, support towards giving these negative viewpoints towards the um, people from the African continent that were coming in. I mean, I think it's an interesting dynamic, the way it it's works. It's true. That's true. Uh, there were African, uh, uh, large African populations brought into Latin America because they were stronger. They had bigger defenses. They, they lived and they could do the work. They were enslaved. Las Casas argued that the treatment of the Indians, that they could not be enslaved. So that's why Indians were not legally enslaved, but it because... Um, Africans have been enslaved since, I don't want to go into it. I would like to explain to some of you, but it'll take too much time. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.